Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Boss Up with Mr. Key. You have your host here, Andre Key, head of my own real estate team. And um, I have a lovely guest today. This woman, I can't say, I mean, amazing sums it up. She's a published author, CEO of Roundtable, an amazing DNI company where she's doing the work out there and she's touching major corporations and she's actually doing what she loves and as an entrepreneur i think that's impressive and incredible she's also a great mom and a great friend to many in her community without further ado my guest today is priya nocor hello priya hello how are you <laughs> i'm doing well i'm doing well hopefully i didn't miss anything i mean you have a long uh list of accolades but you know I think I covered some of the, you know, core stuff. Right? Yeah, I think you got the main points. Good, good. So what I like to do on my show is hopefully there is another Priya out there that's looking to start a business. There is nobody like me out there. <laughs> Man, and she's confident or conceited, whichever way you want to look at it. <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor, don't you? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So let's let's start at the beginning, Priya. Um Take us back to your upbringings. Let's start with high school. Where'd you go? I was born and raised in Nepean, Ontario, Canada, which is a small suburb of Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. Hey. I went to Bell High School. And mm. if you did a Google search on Bell High School in Nepean, Ontario, you would find all kinds of very interesting, provocative stories about that school. And... I was a typical student. The only difference was I was one of like three brown kids in that school. And so that definitely was formative in my experience. Mm -hmm. I did okay in school, not very well. Oh. In fact, <laughs> I was doing well up until like 11th grade. And I mean, then up I until 11th grade, what happened? You discover boys. What? I mean. No, actually, it's interesting you ask because nobody can really explain it. I can't explain it. I just lost motivation and started failing mm. important classes that I needed to get into college. And my parents, you know, that this was not part of the playbook for one of their daughters, Indian immigrant family to fail. It's mm -hmm. not part of the immigrant playbook. The immigrant playbook is that you succeed, you do well in school, you focus on your academics, you get a good job and you make money. Mm. And I was already veering off the playbook starting in high school because I was failing out. Let's let's stop really quick. You mentioned something that I think is it may tie in with your current career, uh, may not, but it was only three brown kids in your whole school, right? The entire school. Something like that. Yeah. So, and you do a lot, you do DNI work, diversity and inclusion for people who aren't sure what that means. Did, how did, did that affect or shape you going into that field? Just knowing that, hey, I was at a school that was, that lacked diversity. It wasn't just the school, you know, growing up in Canada at in the early 80s. There's not a whole lot of diversity. Um, it shaped a lot of who I am. It defines you. It mm -hmm. You start to feel like an outsider. You understand very on, very early on what it means to not be represented. Mm -hmm. And that just becomes part of your reality. So I can't say it defined my career path because I actually wouldn't say that 
I'm a DNI practitioner. I would say I'm a leadership practitioner. Leadership, okay. Which is much more encompassing than mm-hmm. DNI. DNI and leadership, I don't see them as separate mm-hmm. entities. In fact, anyone who talks about leadership should be talking about DNI. Anyone talking about DNI should be talking about leadership. It's the same conversation. Goes hand in hand, huh? Leadership really is if you want to be the person you know you are meant to be, mm-hmm. you have to be thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. Got it. Got it. So, like, when you were in high school, did you start to hone some of your own leadership skills? Yes. I I went to a Uh-oh. leadership program called Shad Valley. Uh-oh. And anyone who knows me is going to laugh when they hear that because it um, and I think just playing team sports, varsity team sports starts to mm. cultivate a sense of leadership okay, in you. Yeah, you were a swimmer. So uh, that's right, right. A swimmer. And you probably did some other things. As I well. mean, in high school, I was a runner. That uh, was that's what took up all my time. You ran away from home. What is that <laughs> <laughs> is kind that, of, actually. Is that like an 11th grade? You were like ditching school, running away. Did it yeah, <laughs> kind of. Like my parents, like I said, my parents didn't know what to do. This wasn't part of the playbook. They sent me to India. And I had to pull up my socks when I got there. So I had to learn how to study. I had to learn how to manage my time. I had Mm. to get back on the playbook. Mm. And luckily, I had support to do that um, in the form of aunts and uncles who taught me and tutored me. And I managed somehow to pass my high school courses by correspondence, come back, apply to college and get in. Was it scary to go to India by yourself without your parents and your sibling? Well, my mom was with me for part of it. No, it wasn't scary. Mm. At least I don't think it was. I think I was, part of me knew I needed to get out of whatever, that situation. I needed a change in pace and scenario. And that gave me that. I think I needed to build my independence. And that's what did that. That's crazy. I think around 10th grade for me is when I was like, hey, I need to like get out of the environment that I'm in. I need to have a change. I mean, I was near the verge of failing out of school and I looked inside and was like, I don't want this for my life. I need to do something different to switch this up. So it worked out. I mean, it's so it's a common time in an adolescent's life. Like we're going through what some may call an identity crisis at that point. We're trying to define who we are Mm -hmm. and what works for us and what doesn't. And failing out, dropping out, failing classes, I think, is from very capable students. It's just an example of resistance to what is expected of you. Right. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. So for you kids in high school right now, we know there's a lot of pressure, but you know, sometimes you have to fight through it because life gets a lot tougher. Wouldn't you say? I don't know. You think high school was easier than real life? Oh, it is real life, but I mean, I don't know. Does it get tougher? It also gets more joyful. It also gets freer. I mean, it gets a whole lot of other things, too. I, okay. I don't know that it gets tougher. Look at Priya flipping it up, taking something and just making it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So high school, you went through that. Uh, had to go to India to make sure you were grounded enough to finish. Let's talk about college. What, what happened then? I ended up at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, doing my degree in kinesiology. Mm. Again, there was like three Indian kids in my class. I picked the whitest 
major. Yeah, no, I, I don't think. even know what that means. Kinesiology. It's a fancy word for physical education. I was good in sports. You're going to be a gym coach, right? Yeah, pretty much. My parents were like, okay, just whatever, do it. Um, and um, it's funny, I was just talking to a development officer at Western yesterday. He was asking me about my experience at Western. And I can't attribute my fulfillment to my academic program there, but I can absolutely attribute it to my involvement in residence staff. Mm -hmm. So I always lived in dorms for the four years that I was there. And each year that I was there, I took on a leadership position as a, you know, RA or as a Don, I was an academic programmer one year. And being part of that team teaches you the basics Mm -hmm. of leadership. You have to discipline other people living on your floor. You have to, you have to be mature enough to make hard decisions in the moment. You have to have difficult conversations and navigate them effectively. And I didn't know it at the time. None of us knew it at the time, but I think it built a lot of my leadership. I mean, it built it. Well, do you feel like you kind of had some of that, like uh, was kind of like a birthright where you could have those tough conversations with people? Or is this something that you gained and you know, really came into your own. I, I firmly believe that it is a learned behavior. Okay. I think that leadership is built and developed. I don't think that it is. There's no natural that you're born. born I think there's a interaction between genes and environment, but I don't think it is all natural ability. Okay. Okay. So, all right. In college, um, you got a degree there. Did you get that Kenny physical <laughs> therapy degree. Physical education, <laughs> kinesiology. Yes, I did. Yeah, I got that okay. degree. And then what happened? Well, it was in my last year. Um, I actually did well. I made the dean's honor list mm. in my last year. And I thought, ah, oh, what the heck? I'm going to apply to Yale. Mm. And how audacious of me to apply to a school like Yale. But I thought... You know what? Why not? Let them reject me before I reject myself. And so I applied and didn't get my hopes up, but I did start getting my hopes up once I got a waiting list ah. uh, response from Yale. And once I got on the waiting list, I started calling them every day. Here's a new resume. Here's a new cover letter. Here's a new recommendation (laughs) letter for my teacher. Here's another thing I'm doing this summer to prove that I deserve to be there. And somehow a week before classes began, they let me in. Mm, A week before classes. Yeah. I must've been so annoying. (laughs) You know, I even showed up and knocked on their door and I said, here I am. Mm. I want a tour of the campus. I want to talk to professors and, um, I don't know what did it, but I ended up getting in. Man, you really wanted that. At, the, at some point, you realized that I belong, I should be here. Well, the the possibility when somebody waitlists you, it's up to you to decide whether you will reject yourself or accept yourself. Mm-hmm. And the waitlist was like, oh, there's a real possibility for me here. Mm-hmm. So I went for it. And um, those two years at year at Yale were pivotal for yeah. me. Okay. Okay. What? How do you think? Uh, first of all, what what did you study at Yale? Public health. Public health. Um, wh- what do you think Yale did to build on what you have today? Like, what did it instill in you that uh, allowed you to be the leader you are today? Yale has an amazing social support system, mm-hmm. and Yale wants you to believe the moment you step foot on campus that you belong, Hmm. 
Mm. That you're special. They do. And that you're going to do amazing things in your life. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's part of, I think it's part of their whole, I'd never experience support like that. Some camaraderie that they have. Yeah. And um, I don't know what you call it. Camaraderie. Yes, there's that. But it's really like, hey, you're, you're going to be a Yale alumni. That means something in the world. Does that mean that carries a a lot of weight? Does that mean you're like in a secret society or part of (laughs) Illuminati when you graduate? Did you do a ritual? I mean, so intriguing, but no, not not little old me. I never did any of that. But what I mean by it being pivotal to me is it was the first time I left Canada for real. You don't realize the culture shock moving from Canada to the United States, especially in the Northeast. It feels like it would be the same, but it's very, very different. So my eyes were opened. And um, at the same time that my eyes were opened, I got a lot of just encouragement that you're going to do an amazing you're going to do amazing things in this world. Did you work while you were in college? Yes. In college, I worked, um, you know, resident staff. And that paid for my tuition and my housing. Mm -hmm. At Yale, I held multiple jobs as an international student. Mm. The fee tuition fees were even higher. So I taught aerobics classes. I worked in a lab. I (laughs) (laughs) I did anything I could to help my parents pay for those tuition bills. Like a VHS video of you doing aerobics with a headband. Uh, Yeah, somebody (laughs) must have destroyed those at some point. (laughs) All right, great, great. So I mean, that's good. I I asked if you worked because, you know, I try to tell you know young or no matter what age they are. Hey, if you're gonna have a business or if you're gonna Sometimes you have to be able to work and also chase your dreams. Like there's really not a lot of room for you to just say, hey, I'm just going to do 100 percent this or I'm just going to focus on school. Like there's a couple of things that have to be working and you have to be excellent with your time management, which I know personally you are with that. Um, When did you establish that? My time management practice? Yeah. So. Again, you're going to think I'm such a nerd. But when I was in undergrad, I had a job called academic programmer. Oh, wow. And in that job, you get your own room in the dorm and it's paid for. But if you accept the job, you have to every month provide seminars for the other students who live in that dorm. Mm. And those seminars need to be on things like study skills and taking multiple choice exams and how to memorize facts and manage your time. So as my partner and I were thinking about this time management seminar that we had to develop for the rest of the 1200 people who lived in that residence, um, I learned a lot about it and realized time management is life management. It is about prioritizing. It is about not just about the mechanical things on your calendar, like what you need to get done, but also very much about where your energy and emotion goes. So we call it time management to me. That sounds so mechanical. It really is life management. And if you can't figure that out in college, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. It's some, you know, undergrad is a degree in time management, nothing else. Mm. Let's go back really quick. You talked about doing seminars. Was that the first time that you actually had to present in front of an audience? I mean, my parents put me on stage from a very early age. But in terms of teaching and workshopping and facilitating conversation, yeah, it started in undergrad. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you're done with Yale. You get a degree. 
what happens next in your adventurous <laughs> life? You know, I loved. So at Yale, I also had the chance to work for UNICEF and travel to Jamaica to do ah. some work because public health degree, um, you had to do a capstone mm-hmm. and an internship. So I got to work at the UN in Manhattan, and then I did part of my internship in, in Jamaica. And that gave me a global bug. Like, I really wanted to travel more. But I loved being a student. And I had a mentor there. Uh, you know, this is becoming a theme, right? Like mm-hmm. having important mentors to, yeah. to see your future in a way that you can't see yet because your view of your future is limited. Mm-hmm. But they have an expanded view of what's possible for you. And if you listen to them, the possibilities open for you. So I had a mentor at Yale who said, maybe you should think about doing a Ph.D. Mm. So I thought, well, hey, I went to Yale. Why not go to Harvard? So I applied to Harvard. I applied to Columbia. I applied to a few other schools. I got categorically rejected from a few people um, who were like, you have no business applying to a PhD. I remember interviewing and one of the advisors even said to me, pack your bags and go back to Canada. What? And you can take that in two ways. You can feel rejected and you can slump yourself down. Or you can take that fuel and say, let me prove it to you that you're wrong. What was that about? Hold on. We can't just glance <laughs> over that. Like, what was that like racially? In- no, she was oh, an okay. Indian woman. Oh, I mean, okay. it might have been, hmm. but I can't attribute it to really racism or bigotry. I mean, I think she really looked at my application. It was like, you don't know what you're doing. Mm. Pack your bags and go back home. Wow. And I could have believed her. I chose not to. So um, Harvard admitted me. I really thought it was a mistake. I thought, you know, I thought Yale was a mistake, too. I thought it was a mistake until I met my my advisor, Marcelo Suarez Orozco, and realized, no, this was a deliberate acceptance. They wanted me in that program. There's a common theme I see here, and I think it's a, a quick lesson to share with the listeners. I mean, high school, 11th grade. I'm sure some teachers thought oh, she's a, about to be a dropout, but you believed in yourself and you pushed through. Um, going to Yale is like, ah, I may not get in, waiting list. Instead of giving up, you push through. And then this lady tells you, Harvard, you might as well pack your bags. So when people don't believe in you, you take and take that belief in yourself and use it as fuel to overcome those obstacles. I think that's key, and I think that people should try to figure out within themselves how they can use that to reach their goals. Uh, I mean, you're going to get all kinds of messages from very well-meaning friends, grown-ups, babysitters, parents, doctors, etc. You get to choose what you listen to and what you keep in your back pocket and what you reject. Mm -hmm. My, I completely blame my parents for giving me the confidence I have today around knowing that no matter what you're going to be successful no matter what there's going to be challenges in life you get to decide how to overcome them and they gave me that message so but don't get me wrong there are plenty of times i was rejected and did get down on myself mm-hmm. that doesn't serve anyone in the long run you are human that happens. you are and you know you have to know that those moments are temporary mm-hmm. And they don't define you. If you let them define you, then they're not temporary. Mm. But if you see them as just like, hey, this is part of the journey, you will move forward. Okay. PhD, what you get in it? 
human development and psychology. Oh, psychology. Mm, that's why you're all. Never mind. I won't get to that point. Um, <laughs> so, OK. All right. Let's talk about your career. Finished um, Harvard. You finished Yale. You finished uh, Western Ontario. I think it was what it was called. Uh, and now where do you land? Where do you start? So after my PhD, I really thought I was going to stay in academia and do the tenure track as a professor. Mm. Um, so that means the next thing you do is a postdoc. Mm -hmm. So I went to Penn and did my postdoc at University of Pennsylvania at the Annenberg Center for Public Policy. Good Lord, woman. How many years of college did you? <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, like I was. <laughs> you're a lifer in college. <laughs> Are you still going to school? <laughs> well, you're and you're making money so okay, hey okay. like it's it's a job you're right, you're making it. money and <laughs> just keep learning and make money at the same time yeah you're i mean that's where i published a whole lot of papers and but i was very unhappy oh. um and that was a hard thing to admit to myself i am a positive optimistic person and to admit that i wasn't happy was a hard mm -hmm. thing for me to do um but luckily i had a um career counselor as a postdoc who said, well, why are you limiting yourself to academia? And I realized I was limiting myself to academia because of my ego. After you graduate with a doctorate from Harvard, you become a, a professor. Like that's kind of the playbook. There's that theme again. And to veer off that playbook means you're taking a risk. You're not doing what people expect of you. But it just wasn't a fit for me because I wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. And so I got a job teaching at Brandeis University, just outside of Boston. And I had a boss who said, um, hey, if you want to do coaching, because that's part of your job, I'll sponsor you to do it. So while I was working, I also did my coaching certification. And in my coaching certification, I met another woman who wanted to start a business. She had the consulting and business pedigree, having worked at places like Boston Consulting Firm, and she wanted to partner with someone who had an academic pedigree, which is what I had, but I knew nothing about business. So she invited a few people to start a business with her, mm. with her as, you know, sort of the president and the rest of us as sort of principals. Mm -hmm. And uh, we built a firm uh, to, you know, four or five million dollars. And I learned a ton about business development and entrepreneurship. And I knew nothing about it before then. I didn't even see myself as someone who could ever build a business or did ever want to build a business. Wow. None of those business electives at all the 10 colleges you went to <laughs> taught you more than what I didn't learned. take a single business course. <laughs> oh, man. Shame I took you. I took. No, I mean, the point is that you can still do it without having yeah. to take a business course, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you can read a ton. You can talk a ton. I, I took like a sports management course okay. uh, in undergrad, but I never took a course on accounting, finance, business development. Okay. I don't even know what courses they, they <laughs> offer in an MBA, but I never took them. Oh, great, great. So you learn and you had firsthand knowledge of being with this, at this point, a young CEO who started. Was that her first company that... I don't think so. I think she had like a track record of C-suite positions yeah. before that. Okay, nice, nice. How long did you do that for? So I left my job at Brandeis when I was nine months pregnant mm. and two days shy of my coaching certification exam. And I took the exam. I passed it. Anjali was born, my first daughter. And a week later, I quit Brandeis and I said yes to this other opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it all happened within the same week. 
Mm. And then I was there for nine years, learned a lot about business, sales, Mm -hmm. designing content, delivering content. Mm. I sharpened my saw, as they say, Stephen Covey's seventh habit Uh in seven habits of highly effective people. Who was there that helped you sort of, they say, iron sharpens iron? Like, I'm sure you had some colleagues and... Colleagues, I attribute a lot of that to to um, my clients. Okay, great. Clients who are willing to give you feedback are the best clients mm. because then you you get better if you're service oriented and you want to give your clients the best experience possible. You're going to listen to their feedback and really take it into account and refine your service. Yeah, that definitely applies to any business. I mean, some companies call it an NPS, a net promoter score or Whatever, like if you can get that data and that information from your clients, I think it is very instrumental in helping you develop and produce a better product, whatever that may be. I hate to say this one, but <laughs> here's another tale for you. Um, I'm trying because I'm I'm just starting a podcast to be uh, politically correct as possible. Like, I understand the climate that we're in, so I don't want to offend anybody. But these are just the stories and and my real estate career, the encounters that I may have had. So, without further ado, we're going to take you to another segment of Confessions of an Austin Agent. <laughs> hey. You like the laugh? Should I keep the laugh, Wes? You got to let me know. Wes is my producer, ladies and gentlemen. Um, But so here we go. Um, There was a client I was working with. They were looking at selling their house and buying another house. And it was a very stressful situation. And me, I tried to like shoulder as much stress as possible. Anyhow, they had a contract on their house and they had a potential house that they wanted to buy. The wife really did not like this house. And so, like, as an agent, I'm playing therapist. I'm playing psychiatrist. I'm playing parent, coach, financial advisor. Like, I wear many hats. Anyhow, uh, the, the husband calls me and says, you know, Andre, we have a problem. I'm not buying this house anymore. I'm done. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's extreme. You're already under contract and you're not selling or buying. Like, we're going to lose a lot of money. I don't care. Come over here. So anyway, walk through the door. Don't know what to expect. Um, And the wife, like, she's always been so sweet. I mean, just a really kind lady. And I come in and the husband's sitting there. It looks like he had a couple of scratches on his face. He's huffing and puffing. <laughs> like, I just came into one of the craziest divorce council meetings ever. And I was the counselor. So they both sitting on separate sides. And I'm like, plan mediation. Hey, you all love each other. Like, this is a commitment. Like, we're going to make this commitment work. And uh, the husband says something to me like, I would never forget. He said, Andre, in my country, the man's first, the wife, then the kids. I'm like, okay, we're in the U.S. But here in the U.S., it's the wife, the kids, the dog, and then the husband. (laughs) I was like, whoa, 
Like, that is not true. Come on, man. Like, anyway, I patched it up. I gave free marriage counseling. I think they, like, kind of gave each other a hug before I walked out of the door, and we made it work. But I walked into this scene, and it was, like, kind of disarray. Again, like, I don't know if <laughs> I'm a realtor. I wear all these hats. Make my other hat like a police officer because I feel like I walked into another potential scene that could have uh, <laughs> made us sit in front of a judge. But anyway, moral of the story again, doing real estate is stressful, really stressful. And people, buttheads, families, you know, get on the same page and then off the same page. But hey, I'm just your agent, and that's another confession of an Austin agent. Okay, so you were there, and you did a nine-year sentence. And, <laughs> and uh, like, what was that key moment that you were like, you know what? I, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed working here, but I can build my own. There were two. Mm, nice. Um. The first was we were at a company retreat. The leadership team decided to do something called the fishbowl, where they sit in the middle of a circle and they talk about the business right. amongst each other, while the rest of the company sits out on the outside of the circle and observes. And then as a whole company, we talk about what just happened. So this was happening at the retreat. The leadership team is in the middle talking about the business. And when we debriefed, people were saying, wow, like, you know, they're sharing their reactions. Like, wow, I didn't know we had so much revenue. I didn't know our clients were, you know, focused on biotech and something like this, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't believe nobody's brought up the fact that everyone in that inner circle and outer circle except for me is white. Mm -hmm. And it was like a mic drop. And I didn't mean to drop the mic. I was sharing what I observed. And I was sharing that I was shocked that nobody else had observed that. Wow. So that was number one. And I thought, it's not that I don't feel I belong here because I feel like that's up to me to decide. Mm -hmm. However, this wasn't right for me. And if everybody else thought it was okay, acceptable, and even right, then I wasn't in the right place for me. Mm. The second thing, hopefully I can talk politics here. The second thing was um, November 8th. 2016, mm -hmm. Donald Trump was elected. Mm -hmm. And my immediate reaction was, crap, we, the voices of minority leaders and the voices of women leaders are going to get minimized and dismissed categorically if we don't resist mm -hmm. his leadership. And so November 9th, I registered Roundtable Institute, which was doing the same work that we were doing at this other firm around coaching and development and changing work culture so that they're more safe and people can speak up and say what they need to say without fear of reprimand or shame, mm. but focused on underrepresented people. Wow. That was huge. That, I, I like that point right there. I mean, you, instead of uh, people called me crying, oh, I can't believe it, but you took charge. You was like, hey, I want to make a change, an impact, and you took action. So I definitely like that. I like that. Um, that was November 9th, right? November 9th, 2016. Yeah. Tell it me. was like, you know, there are people all around me waking up like, was that a nightmare? What, you know, is this a pinch <laughs> me? Is it, you know, and it was like, what, how am I going to channel all that uncertainty and mm -hmm. fuel 
okay, I'm going to start a company. I had no idea what it was going to be or how it was going to build, but there you go. Were you Um, scared? Of course, (laughs) but I was also hopeful. Yeah, hopefully. There you go. Um, People, somebody told me I may have ADHD, so I'm going to just jump somewhere real quick. Uh, April 16th. What does that date mean to you? Well, it's the day after tax day, but it's also the day that I was born. Ah, <laughs> for the people out there that like read into Zodiacs, like, hey, there you go. She may be similar to someone. Uh, <laughs> I just threw that out there. I always like to know, you know, what your birthday means to you, if there's anything behind it besides just the day you were born. I don't know. I mean, I... April 16th is also, we have a funny thing in my family where April 16th is a birthday I share with one of my cousins. Mm. My sister is May 11th and she shares that with another cousin. Wow. We just got lucky to share the same birthdays in our family. But is it fun to share a birthday or is it like, no, I want to be selfish. I want to make it all about me. You know, all my relatives were in India. And so oh, this was okay. a point of connection with them. Pen pal type situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Let me jump back. Let's let's talk. Let's go back to Roundtable Inc. Um, So you jumped out there. Um, For most of my listeners, I say this every show to start a business. It takes money to make money. So I'm assuming you had some reserves set up so that you can do what you had to do. I didn't even think about that. I Mm. didn't even think about how much money I had. All I thought about was what I wanted to do. And I was laser focused on that. And I I felt the money will come if yeah. I'm doing the thing that I know it's so cheesy and everybody says this, but I like there's some truth to it. And that's why everybody says it. But if you if you are laser focused, mm-hmm. the rest will fall into place. I really I had no accounting software. I had I didn't even have a computer like I hate wow. spreadsheets. I hate <laughs> tracking all of that stuff. But I. I had a, I guess they call it a vision. I had a, I had a, you know, a pursuit that I was after relentlessly. So how'd you get yourself out there? Like, how did someone find out about you? Like, what happened? What'd you do? Yeah, that's a good question. I just started talking to people mm-hmm. and I told them, you know, the great thing about being a coach is you can coach anyone in any moment, uh-huh. even without their permission. <laughs> and I've done this to you. Yeah, no so like <laughs> somebody will come to you with a problem mm-hmm. and many of us with very good intention will try to solve it for them because that's what we know best. We think we're being helpful when we offer a solution. It turns out that that's not very satisfying for the other person. But when you coach them and you help them come up with their own solution, it's far more empowering to them and much more sustainable. And they're likely to come up with a better solution than you could have offered in the first place. Nice. And so I just practiced coaching. And then people would be like, hey, that thing you did, like, how can I bring that to my company? How can I bring that to my team? And I was like, oh, well, it turns out I have a business and this is what we do. And here's my fee. Right. <laughs> so it just and and. My business is really by referrals. So I don't, mm-hmm. I spend a little bit of money on marketing, but really not a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have conversations. I build relationships just like your business. Mm-hmm. It's all about relationship about building and building rapport mm-hmm. and trying to practice my craft as much as possible. Because when I speak confidently about my craft, when I practice my craft, mm-hmm. people 
see the passion in it. And most people want to follow a passionate leader. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. You know what? You said something I want to jump back around to. And it was like, hey, if you solve their problems, they will see it as unfulfilling. But I just realized that if you solve their problems, sometimes you create this codependency and they're going to come to you all the time. Like, I need your help, 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 help. You're, yeah. So yeah. I, I just thought about that. And that, that is something like I need to stop solving problems unless it's related to my business. But uh, helping yeah. people solve their problems is helping them far more empowering. Now, there's a way you can integrate it mm -hmm. by simply asking the person, hey, would you like a solution or would you like me to coach you? Mm. And let them decide. But you don't get to decide what they need. They do. That's true. That's true. Um, and on the dependency thing, yeah, like I tell all my clients, okay, we'll start with six months one-on-one -on -one coaching and maybe we'll extend to, to a year. But after that, I'm going to insist that we take a break so that you, we can check that we're not dependent. <laughs> you bump them out of the nest. Yeah. Hey, go ahead. Fly. And they take a break. Most of the clients reluctantly take the break. Mm-hmm. And then they see they can do it on their own. And then when they come back three months later, they're like, okay, now I'm ready to level up. Let's take it to the next My stage. Gosh. So this goes and you're building your brand, you're building your company. And it was just you at first, right? It was just me. That's that's what I wanted it to be. That's It was just me. Yeah. For how many years? Um, when did I meet you? 20 uh, until about until 20. about 2019 2020 early yeah. 2020 before the pandemic started okay okay and then at some point why did you feel like you had to scale up so um george floyd was murdered mm -hmm. in may 2020 okay we're in the midst of pandemic corporations there's a lot of pressure on them to start doing the socially responsible thing. Mm -hmm. And in the wake of George Floyd, many companies raised their hand and said, okay, we're gonna invest a ton in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Now, Roundtable was not a DNI company. I've always said it's a leadership development firm, which, like I said in the very beginning, if you're going to do leadership development work, you have to do equity work. You cannot be a good leader if you are not also paying attention to dynamics of diversity and inclusion. So we started to do enterprise level work with companies that wanted to change their entire cultures to be more diverse and equitable. Mm. And when you do enterprise level work, it means you're working with everyone from the CEO all the way to the cafeteria staff and mm -hmm. everyone in between. And you're touching a lot of people's lives. So one enterprise learns about Roundtable doing it with them somebody gets word that it's working, our mm -hmm. culture is shifting, and this is how the business started to, to grow. Mm -hmm. Now, my hope is that, like, it was a good thing that there was such a surge of energy mm -hmm. in May and June. I don't want it to die down. I want people to see that this is a worthy investment sustaining into the long term, mm -hmm. too. So that's where we are now. All right, good. And where are you now? How, how big is your company as far as employees? Oh, yeah. Or contractors? So the re okay, so we started doing enterprise level work. I certainly couldn't do that by myself. Right. And um, I had a, you know, I have good friends. Mm. You're one of my friends. Yeah, yeah. And you told me, okay, Priya, you're either going to have to say no to this, these like big scale projects mm -hmm. or you're going to have to build a team. So I was like, oh. I wasn't planning on building a team, 
but I also hate saying no to touching so many people's lives. Mm. And I hate the idea that we can leave so much service on the table when people are asking mm-hmm. us to help them make their companies more they diverse. They literally throwing checks at you like, hey, help. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the money was nice, but it's also like, gosh, this company really wants to change. Mm. And that's very inviting to me. Mm. Okay, so I had to build a team. And so we built a team of now 30 facilitators across the world. We have coaches in Netherlands and Tokyo and India. And we have coaches who speak English, French, Spanish, Mandarin, Arabic. Um, And I'm really proud of that. And Mm -hmm. it happened quickly and it happened so that we can meet the demand. Mm, Nice. I mean... That again, if that's not inspirational for you out there, but I, I want to jump off of the uh, Roundtable Institute for a second and get a little personal. And um, Priya, I know that um, you have two amazing young children, very active in their lives, but yet you run this very lucrative, uh, rewarding organization. And I know a lot of people suffer with like that work-life balance. And we talked about life management early on. Um, Like, how are you able to do that? Like, I think that's important for people to hear. I mean, a a lot of entrepreneurs I know, they're workaholics, right? It's like, there's never an off button. How are you able to do that? You know, this is the word of the year. It's boundaries, right? So like, (laughs) I, I, I wanted to work only when my children were at school Hmm. and not after that. So that means I work 8.30 to 2.30 and I do not think about work or do work outside of those hours on Monday through Friday. Um, Why 2.30? So that I can go pick up my kids in car line because the five minutes you get them on the way home Hmm. is when they tell you everything. (laughs) (laughs) So work-life balance is is just about managing your time. It's about prioritizing. Now, what do I do between 8.30 and 2.30? I work. Yeah. Like, I really do work. <laughs> I do not get distracted. I My phone is um, not on. I mean, even in the early days, like, did you ever, I mean, your business is very different. Like, did you, did you feel like if I shut down work at 2.30, I might be losing business opportunities, like even building it that you have that schedule? Or did I never evolve? felt that way. Mm. Never felt that I was missing opportunities. And I probably did. Mm-hmm. I just didn't focus on it. But I did, um, you know, I do work out. You know that. Yes, like yep. I I have an assistant now, which has changed my life. I've had an assistant for almost a year. I don't know why I didn't get one earlier. <laughs> that was probably because of money. Uh-huh. Um, but it's important that you, you know, I think the reason I'm able to do this is because of all those things you mentioned. I have good health. Mm-hmm. I have a family that really supports me. I have great friends and I want to be, you know, very involved in my children's life. Mm. That's good. That's good. I mean, so I just wanted to bring that up so people can know that it's possible. It's doable. Um, and boundaries and prioritizing what's important to you should be worth more than chasing a dollar, I feel like. Well, and I recognize that I can only say that because I have an enormous amount of privilege. You know, Mm -hmm. like I went to some of the top schools Mm -hmm. 
that's not lost on me. I was born in a very safe environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some privilege. I have some unearned advantages. So I'm going to use that in a way that serves my life, but also people's lives who don't have that level mm-hmm. of privilege. I also recognize that I, I also have headwinds working against me too because of, you know, I'm a single mom mm-hmm. and I'm a woman of color. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that work against me too, but right. we have to be aware of our own privilege, our headwinds, our tailwinds and work with them. Wow. Okay. Man, I, I mean, this was a great interview. I, again, I always tell you how inspirational you are and I, hopefully this one touches some people out there. If you were to, you know, the main thing I know about you is that you're doing what you're passionate about. Like this is something like it's not about a paycheck. I mean, that's just the after effect of you doing the work you love. Is there well, if there was a word that you want to get to and give to another aspiring entrepreneur, whether it's in your field or any field, what would you say? It's a little girl out there that's, you know, going into college or finishing college. And she aspires to do what she's passionate about. What would you tell that person? So, I, you know, I I am service oriented. I appreciate you saying that, but I'm also money oriented. Mm-hmm. And if I were to speak to a little girl, I would say, go get your money. Mm-hmm. Because when you are a girl growing up in North America, you've got to be financially minded and you've got to be independent minded because you just don't know how life is going to show up and play out for you. But if you have your own money, you can do anything. So focus on making your money. And if you happen to be able to, to configure your life so that you are doing what you love while making money, you've hit the jackpot. That's good. So do not do the thing that is not going to make you any money. Now, Having said that, I tell my kids, you can do anything you want. You can be an artist. You can clean homes. You can be the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Be the best at it. Mm-hmm. Make money doing it. Be entrepreneurial around how you think about your craft, whatever that happens to be, mm-hmm. and make those two things work for you. And mm-hmm. I can show you how. I like that. I like that. There's one thing I want to add. I always, and well, I grew up in the south side of Chicago, it was like this saying, all money isn't good money. And so get your money. But if for a young woman, there's something called compromising yourself, your identity or your passions. And that's something like, how would you speak to that? I'm not sure I understand the, the question. So get your money, right? But all money isn't good money for even for your organization. Yeah, make your money, earn it. Yeah. But like, for example, if a company came to you and you weren't aligned with their overall Oh, yeah. Values, I have said no to companies. Yeah, That's yeah. right. So, yeah, I think this goes, you have to understand what's important to you and pursue that mm-hmm. while keeping in mind the importance of building your wealth mm-hmm. as you're pursuing what your, your personal values. Yeah, your personal values are important. Those are your foundations to you and your company, right? That can be pretty yeah. much the, the pillars of your organization based off your personal morals and your personal values. So that's great. That's great. Priya, amazing, beautiful smile. This was a great conversation. If people wanted to find out more about your company or find out more about how to do what you do, like what are some resources you can throw out there? So our website is theroundtableinstitute.com. And my email address is pnelcor at theroundtableinstitute.com. And I always love when hearing from people, but no, st- no spam, please. Okay, okay. Um, 
And you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Well, you know I have a million visitors. You just gave out your, e- I mean, a million. Uh, well, then I'll, I'll <laughs> take a million is emails. Now. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's great. Hey, you all, thank you for our fifth and one of our best episodes. Priya, I appreciate you for coming and joining us and shining some light to our listeners on how to boss up. Thanks again, Wes, for producing this show. It's a wrap.